Welcome to Prawn Talk. My name is Malcolm Prawn Prawnson. And I'm Prawn Fitzprawn. <laughs> <laughs> I've changed the way I enunciate my name now. Enough time has elapsed since the last one that I've basically my name is now said differently. Prawn? Fitzprawn. You've got to let that sizzle, <laughs> that space between the two. Build anticipation for yeah, that's the fair. final bit of my name. Anticipation. Patient. <laughs> oh, you just made me have a Tim Curry gasm. Don't say that. You know Frankenfurter was one of my first crushes, I think, probably. And like that, patient. I'm like, oh! Like, I'm learning a lot about you, Prawn, today. We're going to do away with the, the randomizer list today, and we're going to do away even, not even top ten. We're going to strip it all down to the one, the one oh. film that we collectively as prawns love the most and yes. we thought we'd been warned against doing a single episode dedicated to this one film in particular but uh, I heed no warnings from no sea beast from no yeah. ranging seagull because I think this is a conversation that needs to be had in light of yes. the popularity of films within this genre and the fact that many of mm -hmm. these films are being retroactively reappreciated and this one just mm -hmm. kind of isn't really it's just not no one really ever talks about how it's it's maybe not a perfect movie but it's got a lot of things going for it that just and particularly things that have been quite influential on subsequent movies in the genre that just aren't really hailed as being particularly innovative yes so if okay so we'll do the context for the film and then we'll launch into the film. Yes. So the year is the year of our Lord, 2004 AD, uh, by Western Christian calendar. Can I just interject? And Are you was... sure it wasn't 2003? Uh, it could have been. Because I'm pretty sure it was 2003. <laughs> so we're off to a flying start. <laughs> we are experts in this film. It was fucking 2003, I think. Okay, we're going to keep this in. <laughs> I feel like that's it, it gives an authenticity to your complete ignorance. Yeah, I think we're authentically ignorant prawns, and I think that's uh, vitally important for people to Have know. you got the year? I have got the year. It is 2003. So the year is 2003. Yep. Uh, if you recall, if any prawns of our, um, I would say, unusual vintage, remember what it was in that time to be a fan of comic book films and films about comic books... It was a it was a strange landscape, and you got you often got gems. You had I think the first X Men had come out by that point. Yeah, two thousand was the first X Men for sure. And I think was it Spider Man was the year before. Spider Man was two thousand two. Yeah. So this was the first kind of I would say tentative awakening of what comic book films could be at that point. Comic book movies were interesting in the sense that they were all made by generally separate studios. Mm. So they all had their own way of trying to incorporate comic book elements, deliberately omitting comic book elements. Like, for example, you've got something like X-Men, which is deliberately... It takes the central themes of isolation and minority groups, which are what X-Men's basically about. Yeah. But it strips out any of the comic book visuals. So you've got plain black costumes. You've got something like Spider-Man, which again was the year before, which hues closer to the comic book style, mm. but it incorporates a lot of the styles that made Sam Raimi known within horror circles. And then you've got something like Hulk. And I, Yes, so we are talking about Hulk, the 2003, as we know now, 
Ang Lee film and a film that we have a deep love for specifically and I know it's not a film it's a film yes that has a varied press and I have had other uh, beach dwellers laughing for upwards of an hour when I say it's my favourite film and I try and get an edge in but they've gone by the time we've had uh, I would say exceeding an hour I mean I once saw uh, I think it was actually was it I think it was actually one of those little was it a muscle like it was a must. It was. It was definitely a bivalve of some kind. Yeah. The bivalve. I'm not prejudiced against the bivalves, but they they are endlessly. Well, they're very sedentary creatures, aren't they? Yeah. Oh yeah. I Easy mean, for really, them to sit and criticise. Yeah. Fucking filtering all day, filtering away. Yeah, and we. And um, but I'll tell you the one thing they don't filter: their critical opinions. <laughs> they are nakedly unvarnished in their criticism of films and this five album in particular laughed like from uh, 15 16 hours straight just on the rock chattering away was it <laughs> was it piggy steve no because um it wasn't piggy steve it was it was he's... rock dwelling alan rock dwelling alan is particularly bad i will say like piggy steve is he's not pleasant but rock dwelling alan i i feel like we've mentioned him enough so, um, so yeah, inconsistent. I would, what I would like to root in early as a word in this particular episode is the word inconsistent, because that is what yes. the, the comic book film uh, scene was like. If you had franchises like uh, the Batman franchise, uh, you know, just 10 or so years before, you went from the kind of gothic grandeur of Tim Burton pretty quickly into whatever neon cod pieces neon cod pieces do you know what I mean and I feel like Basically. I feel like even when you did have franchises they weren't consistent and like the concept now that we like it, it is wild to me that we live in this world where you have like a consistent what like 10 films that are like fairly consistent and all interconnected comic book films yeah, I mean, you can say you can say a lot about the MCU, and we probably will go into it quite a bit. But they are—they're never bad, really. No. Movies for a start. Well, that's what I'm saying. They're they always con- at the most okay. Like that's the worst they get is that they're just okay movies in their own right. Mm. And again, visually, tonally, they all kind of interlock in a way which has revolutionised the film landscape. Yada yada. But we're not really talking about that. No too much but but you didn't get that shit you had random things like daredevil guffed out in like 2000 and i think 2003 2004 yeah, someone around the same but this is the shut out daredevil this is the context because you have like fox doing one thing you've got and and hulk is a whole different company isn't it universal very complicated story with the rights yeah and it had been in development hell for about 10 years because yeah again something that people i even think surpasses us a bit the hulk tv series and the hulk tv movies in the 70s and 80s made him a a real household figure and apart from in the 90s where you had that animated series which was great but it wasn't like it didn't make cultural waves no the most i saw the animated series was when it was part of the marvel action hour oh yeah which was so good. You had Iron Man. You, you had, had Iron Man, Fantastic, Fantastic Four, Four, and and Hulk. That's 
for me for me this is the thing we're we're entering full 90s nostalgia era now and i just what i want is for a for the inevitable fantastic four film coming from marvel disney to just have that fucking theme tune go hard the theme tune is is incredibly good fantastic four series and you know what like it's frequently listed as being like an embarrassing theme tune and i'm like reed richards is fantastic I find myself saying that several times a day. Yeah, yeah. Even even though it's very hard to crowbar into conversations, especially with Alan. I mean, <laughs> it starts with the words, on an outer space adventure, they got hit by cosmic rays. And that's the finest yes. sentence in the English language. And you don't need anything else <laughs> other than that. Going from that, in whatever it was, 1996, to Hulk, which, as I recall, the theme tune was just Hulk. <laughs> repeated <laughs> Hulk, Hulk, Hulk As uh, we're still talking about the, um, the the popularity of the of the Bill Bixby series, The Incredible Hulk oh. and it cemented to a lot of people the idea of what Hulk was and yes. tonally the Incredible Hulk movie which follows on from Hulk skews closer to that which is literally Guy wondering because in the Hulk the movie with Eric Banner, the one we're going to talk about, well, how it's structured mm. is it's not structured like a superhero movie. It's not a superhero movie. It is no, it's a psychodrama. No, well, uh, 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 is it? Because lots of people say it is, but it's. I would say that yes, although it has a psychodrama element to it, which is incredibly um, strong and present. Yes, it's actually closer to one of the sort of. 1950s atomic monster movies which inspired the idea of hulk to begin with because yeah it's got really strong psychodrama elements and you can tell that's what particularly interests ang lee but in terms of structure particularly Mm. the way that you've got the pacing leading up to particular battles and the battles themselves it actually mirrors things which are closer to godzilla or king kong well i think this is quite a contemporary point to make actually and I, i feel like we have to get this in here is that like there's been much talk of the upcoming Eternals film by Marvel and how and how it's odd that the director of Nomadland, who's only ever really done kind of dramas or like, you know, social commentary type films, is kind of leaping onto this massive vehicle. But like the the Ang Lee had been known before this for what? Sense and Sensibility, The Ice Storm and uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And then like hulk do you know what I mean? yeah it represented the first instance really of what we're now seeing a lot of which is prestige directors doing a comic book movie yeah and, and whereas i'd argue if you look at other contemporary choices for directors you had like sam raimi yes okay he was known in his early career for uh, horror but he had done he'd done dark man yeah he did dark man which is a is a particularly good superhero movie unconnected to anything else it's a, a unique ip that he created which is, is actually yeah. a really solid comic book movie like a dark comic book movie i feel like ang lee was he's definitely unique in terms of what he had done before and yeah and what he did after as well because he did like what well he went straight into brokeback mountain basically after Broke this. Back, yeah he did brokeback mountain and then he was doing he did like a although that does have like it's got the joker and mysterio in it so it's still a comic book movie it's a love story between joker and mysterio and <laughs> basically isn't it so 
It's still a comic book movie. That is continuity cake. Right there. The the landscape before the Hulk is very weird. The landscape within the Hulk is very weird. So should we just go into talking about the actual film? And Yeah. Because you talked okay. about the theme. So And it's a very I think it's safe to say, and I will the most common criticism of it that that I ever get, and this is quite frequent criticism, is that it's slow to start. And it's about whether that's a deliberate artistic choice. It is. It is. It's a tonal choice. This is always the argument that fans of the film, nay lovers of the film, like ourselves, would put forward that it's it's deliberately much like the Universal Studios Hulk roller coaster (laughs) designed to start gentle and get more full on, which it does do. But I suppose it's a hard pill to swallow in in what is quite a long film, you would argue. Very lengthy, it's about two and a half hours. Yeah, it it is. And for audiences, maybe seeking, because this is, I think, a, a large part of why it has the reception it does and the, the reputation it does, is that it was marketed in a way similar to Spider Man in the sense that it was, mm. you know, school lunchboxes and cereal and all this. And people went to what was essentially, yeah, like this this drama, this kind of like anxious character drama, you know, that only picks up at about 45 minutes into it. (laughs) And like, I would say I really love the action sequences and I really love the kind of comic editing they do. It's which is quite distinctive. It reminds me of Comic Zone on the Mega Drive. Oh, yes, playing that the other day. Or the Genesis as it is known. And yeah, incorrectly, as it's known incorrectly, it's called a Mega Drive. The, the very gaudy version of the console that they gave in America and it would pop out a Bible. Yeah, because I was going to say, like, if Genesis represents the first book of the Bible and the origin of everything, why is the prelude called Master System? <laughs> is that like, is that like the, the, the preface to the first book of the Bible? Genesis is called Master System, yeah. where God was working in 8-bit. Yes. What do you say to those first 45 minutes of Hulk? as structurally as a choice okay so yeah it's intentional and one of the things that ang lee gets so right about hulk is he absolutely nails what the tone is and what the comics tone Mm. is like the idea behind hulk is it's all about inherited trauma so bruce banner inherits not just his dad's genetic propensity for weirdness Mm but also his his actual trauma, which is rooted in that too. So it's about the idea kind of how much we get from our parents. I mean, one of the most telling lines early in the film is you've got Jennifer Connelly's character playing Betty Ross, and her dad is obviously the very overbearing, mustachioed Sam Elliott, um, General Thunderbolt Ross. Yeah. And people always say there's no like villain in this film, really, or no big villains come up, but come on, General Thunderbolt Ross is fucking awesome, and Sam Elliott is perfect casting. But regardless, there's a line early in the film where Betty's talking to Bruce and they've just broken up. And she's like, uh, um, it's just another example of my attachment to emotionally distant men. And it's talking, but basically it's relating to her and her father. Because you've also got not only Bruce and his connection to his estranged lunatic father, played by Nick Nolte, but you've also got the legacy that Betty inherits from her father as well. Mm. Um, And it's about what our parents pass on to us like whether or not it's emotional trauma or defective, strange genetics. And 
it's about how that trauma simmers throughout your life until you get to a point of catharsis and that catharsis is the Hulk that comes out mm. and that's uh, in that regard he nails what the comics are basically about which is there's long fucking stretches where the Hulk isn't present mm. and this is why the Hulk is a monster movie because when you first see the Hulk he's shadowed he's not properly seen you just see acts of his violence smashing the lab around he's revealed like a movie monster he's not revealed like a superhero mm. the Hulk isn't actually a superhero someone asked me recently is the Hulk a superhero like Batman or Superman or Spider-Man or whatever and I'm like no he's not even really an anti-hero he's a monster that happens to exist in a universe where there are superheroes mm. and he sometimes finds himself fighting the good fight or in conflict with other monsters and other supervillains or enemies but generally speaking and from his first appearance he was a monster so that first 45 minutes is just a slow build towards more and more details being drip fed about bruce's life from his again returning estranged father to the point where he reaches that catharsis where it all comes out and hope comes out and in that regard it's it's paced accurately but I wouldn't necessarily say, on the hindsight of watching it again, that it's necessarily paced well, but it's paced accurately. Like, the tone is nailed, and it's building towards, again, that big payoff and big catharsis of the Hulk being revealed. Yes. But I wouldn't necessarily say that it's paced with enough energy throughout. And I would also say that although I love the casting, which I think is bang on, Sam Elliott's perfect, Nick Nolte so good that for years you and I would always refer to these incredibly overblown monologues or act bizarre out of left field acting choices as Nick Nolte moments yeah, yeah, yeah. or Nick Nolte acting because he's so perfectly weird it's like he just wandered onto this film from having his famous mugshot taken and just started acting they're like just film it just fucking check it yeah, in Nick there Nolte is, like, so again, is deeply underrated perfect acting choices like you can never go wrong by casting Jennifer Connelly in anything because she's fantastic. Yes. Eric Banner, I love, and I'll always stand by Eric Banner, and good casting is Bruce. However, I get that some people find their interactions somewhat stilted, and that although it's well-paced in the sense that tonally it's building towards what we know is coming, yes. and I find with the length of time it takes to get there, I can see how people find the performances and the dialogue a little bit stilted. It's not quite energetic enough. No to and i get that as a criticism so i i know it's a deliberate artistic choice i think it works if you buy into it i can see why it alienated people but this is uh, this is something as well that that i find when it does start do you know what i mean and when it does as it were when it kind of picks up its pace it's amazing like some of those sequences yeah. i think are still really amazing because it's like industrial light and magic they were doing really solid work for 2003 i mean you, you were coming off the back of Gollum yeah in 2002 which at that point was the high watermark for cgi and to be honest Gollum does look better than the hulk when you go back and watch it again. yeah Gollum's held up like astonishingly fucking well and the hulk has held up very well for 2003 mm. and there are some sequences that really really work mm. what some of the choices that Angley made that people find most unusual the Hulk dogs yes is is unusual yeah, the, as a I mean choice. we should go so in there right now rather than the Hulk's first clash with like being like an enemy like the Abomination which is like a recurring foe of the Hulk who's kind of on par with him which is who they had as the main villain in The Incredible Hulk which was about three years later which was the reboot again we will get to that 
but the Hulk dogs were definitely an unusual choice. <laughs> I don't know whether or not that like inspired. I'm not quite sure what he was going for exactly. Like, I don't know whether or not they they're intended because they're not exactly portrayed as they have no comedy moments. Mm. So they're not really a funny idea. <laughs> they're portrayed as consistently quite menacing. Yeah. But one of them's a poodle. Yeah. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I, mean, I think I think yeah, just... again the pacing thing is something when they're really getting into telling me off for liking it, they will they will talk about. But the surface thing is always the dogs, I think. Because for them it's too you're right, it's tonally jarring to be like here's it's a passive angry poodle. For no particular reason. <laughs> Like, Doesn't he like punch one in the bollocks? Is it like? <laughs> yeah, and they all pop. They pop when he kills them into green smoke for like no particular reason. <laughs> and like, there's it's really fucking weird because basically, like, Bruce turns. It's been a little while since I've seen it properly. I watched a couple of little bits and pieces last night to refamiliarize myself with it. Well, I saw you on the prawn tube. I was trying to sleep. Like Bruce is the Hulk. He's with Jennifer Connelly's character Betty Ross. The dogs turn up, giant mutant dogs. Betty doesn't really react to it with a huge amount of shock for seeing a giant mutant poodle. Yeah. But the Hulk just kind of like looks at Betty and just kind of pushes her gently to one side with a kind of, I'll deal with this mutant poodle look, which is bizarrely casual. As if the Hulk's <laughs> just kind of like, don't worry, I got this. He's it's a, a mutant he's poodle. A, well, this, is something, this is something I kind of want to bring in is, is like when he is the Hulk, his vibe is kind of performance because isn't it uh, for a lot of it ang lee himself yeah wearing the ang little gray bubbles the whole. particularly yeah. there's a scene i think on on the dvd of ang lee doing the and it is an amazing sequence the pulling the top of the tank off yeah like ripping the top of a tank off and he does this thing where he's got the bit of the tank in one isn't it as he's doing it something like he he pulls up his sleeves He's yeah. He sort of flexes his arms, and then he like does that menacing baseball bat against the palm of the hand thing, which I can't obviously show anyone because we're you know hearing the prawns, and we don't really have the, the the appendages to do it. Again, an odd choice. It's such a strange performance. It's that's what I'm saying. It's so. It's a I think film this is... that takes itself intensely seriously, except sometimes it doesn't. It's the closest. Yeah. To, weirdly, a, a very close tone would be something like like almost like a Christopher Nolan movie because Christopher Nolan handles yes. comedy very badly and his moments of levity are clunkingly bad like if you go back and watch like the dark knight and batman begins the moments where like humor is attempted are like an alien trying to do humor like they are so <laughs> bad like there's a bit where like batman sees a hobo that he gave a coat to earlier in the film and just goes nice jacket and it's like <laughs> like in this other bits as well like the police officers react to the batmobile hopping around like chasing after the joker and the lorry with like these kind of yeah. glib remarks which no it were like oh no oh no whoops and like these kind of weird and they have no they no grounding and how gritty the rest of the film is and angley's hulk is a bit like that <laughs> Like, there's this bit at the beginning where jokes just fall flat. Like, they're literally just falling flat left, right, and center. Like, there's a bit where, like, they're talking about how they're Betty and Bruce basically trying to develop a simple serum. And they keep accidentally making frogs explode. And, like, 
Bruce is like, oh, if ever there's a plague of frogs, who does the government come to? They come to us. And it's like, it's just such a... Nobody would make that joke, especially in this movie. And, like, there's just these weird attempts at humour and levity throughout that just don't... Well, I would say... uh, I would say as well, um, Glenn Talbot... Is a in the, weird ass like bro character that just exists in this. Yeah, film. he he st- becomes increasingly manic, and and certainly the, yeah, it's weird. It just escalates insanely quickly from like, know. oh Bruce, yeah, I've got a bit of competition with you as a love rival for Betty, even though she's not really that interested, yeah. and like also the the affections of Thunderbolt Ross, I think as well a bit to yeah. him hitting Bruce repeatedly with cattle prod. To him trying to cut bits of Bruce off. Yes. Him trying to shoot Bruce with a grenade launcher. Like, it just escalates and escalates really insanely quickly. Again, it's a weird-ass movie. It's filled with these weird, bizarre moments of hysteria amongst austere, stilted art house movie performances. Like, everyone's quiet and subdued then suddenly everyone's screaming and biting cables like and it's it's uh this is why it's a wonderful movie yeah (laughs) let's go back to inconsistency as the word because it's that which i feel like i am embodying in my critique of this movie (laughs) which is the standard by now exactly well exactly what what better way to critique an inconsistent film in an inconsistent way when we first saw it because i think you had seen it you had hopped into town to go to that cinema i saw it with a crowd called reginald yes i remember reginald i remember reginald like it was only yesterday (laughs) but you hopped to our local cinema and watched it and then you came back and you told me all about it in in a very enthusiastic way where i was like well that sounds interesting and then i think when it came on home video and i know you have these devices and we watched we watched it on your uh, vhs in a green case i seem to remember it had it did have a green case, green case. it was very green and themed i was just overwhelmed with how completely insane it was it's not a lie to say that it was probably the first film that because I, I was quite young when I saw it. I was about 16 when I... Pretty old for a prawn. It is old for a prawn. Okay, so I was in my teenage equivalent years, for prawn years, prawns age differently than humans. Can't be bothered to explain it. <laughs> but I was young when I saw it. I, um, I saw it, and it was probably the first real movie that left... Not that kind of big blockbuster feeling of exhaustion and, oh my God, that was so fun kind of mm. feeling, but more of a like a cerebral feeling yeah, yeah. where I was thinking about it a lot. I was just thinking, that bit was weird and interesting. And it got me, and the climax of the film, which is really bizarre and ambiguous for mm. a, a comic book movie. Like what is actually happening here? Rather than the sensation of hero fights villain, villain gets impaled through the dick by his glider, like in Spider-Man, which is how Willem Dafoe goes out. It goes right through his Willem. Defoe gets it right in the Willem. <laughs> Spider-Man's Defoe gets it right through the Willem at the end of, um, <laughs> of with a pumpkin glider. Yeah. Right through the pumpkins with a glider <laughs> at the end. <laughs> Keep going. Um, <laughs> yeah. Rather than that, there's this ambiguity to his final conflict with David Banner, his estranged father figure. Yeah, where basically, who becomes electric. They fight in the sky. electric. 
basically what happens is you have this final confrontation between Bruce Banner and his father. His father's been estranged from his life. They meet, they're forced back into confrontation by the government. Don't remember why they have to sit in a room together. But anyway, they have to sit in a room together. They're surrounded by these high-powered electric cables designed to electrocute everybody in the room if Bruce completes his transformation into the Hulk. At this point, all of the team of the military barking and swallowing orders <laughs> have no knowledge that David Banner also possesses powers, and he possesses the powers, oddly enough, of Crusher Krill, the Absorbing Man. Don't know why. But he's got the ability to basically absorb anything from around him. Yeah. They don't know that. David Banner... He kind of becomes both Absorbing Man and Zax, the, the villain that's yes, made of electricity. Yes, another... And also kind of Hydra Man as well. Sort so of. lots of different yeah. Marvel characters chucked in there. But basically, this the, the central theme for David Banner is again this idea of inherited trauma so he sees Banner, Bruce Banner as just a, a hollow shell in his own words containing his real son who is the Hulk who is not just his progeny in the sense that he's got all these inherited genetic weirdness that David Banner passed on to him but also inherited trauma because he is the manifestation of all of the rage that Bruce feels as to his lost mother mm -hmm. who Banner killed, right? So he's trying to release what he sees as his true son, like the Hulk is his true son. Um, yeah, so he was, he was never interested in Eric he's never Banner, interested in Bruce. Basically. He's interested in the culmination Much like of his the work. audience. <laughs> yes. <He's>, he was <laughs> the culmination of his work <laughs> and meeting his true son, who he feels more of an affinity with, yes. who is the Hulk. So he's trying to bring out the Hulk and Bruce. Well, they all are. I, I almost feel like everyone's surrounding him because Talbot, that's what they want. They just want him to turn into the Hulk. They want a piece of the Hulk, literally, a lot of and, the time. They and I feel like this might be thinking overthinking it too much, but it's like the David Banner character and the military-type uh, structure all want what the audience wants and just Hulk. Yeah. But they just won't, <laughs> they can't get it. We just want him out. Come we on, just, in 45 minutes. We just want him out. Get him out, like, for fuck's sake. This is why fundamentally it's structured like a monster movie, because this is basically, first of all, metatextually what the audience wants. And in this respect, it mirrors the 2014 legendary Godzilla movie. All audiences wanted was to see Godzilla. Mm. All the filmmaker wanted was to make a slow burn movie closer in structure to Jaws. But its largest criticism was it takes 45 minutes for Godzilla to turn up. When he does, there's not enough of him. And mm. we can't see much of the fights, which are all kind of criticisms leveled yes. at Hulk. So yes, it's yes, yes. the same kind of cold reception, but did sub substantially better at the box office and is generally a better regarded movie. But it made the same, in quotation marks, mistakes. Yes. So it's structured very much like a monster movie in that it's all about culminating towards the monster appearing. The monster appears and faces off First of all, with a number of other beasties, mm. which is exactly how King Kong 1933 plays out. Yeah. So when you first see Kong, he faces off with what's supposed to be a T-Rex. doesn't really resemble a T-Rex very much, but faces off with a T-Rex. Well, um, the female lead is kind of prone. She's to one side. She's watching the battle unfold like the audience. Mm. Then the monster faces off with the best technological advances of the military of that time, which is exactly yeah. what happens in King Kong. He faces off against five planes, exactly what happens in Godzilla, where he faces off against the Oxygen Destroyer, which is what defeats him in the 1954 movie. So it's structured like a monster movie. We're all here for the monster. Yeah. 
the, the military is there for the monster too. Yeah. So they're trying to release the monster. And David Banner, in I don't know if it's frustration or if it's tactical, bites into a high-powered electrical cable <laughs> and starts going... <laughs> <laughs> suddenly turns into a giant electrical man with a beard still. So he's like a giant electrical Nick Nolte. Blasts into the sky as a bolt of lightning, taking the Hulk with him. Yeah. You then get this astonishing visual, even to this day, of them basically lit up against the clouds. Yeah, just becoming lightning strikes. Just and only, so you get these little tableaus in, yeah, of them fighting. Oh, it's gorgeous. Like, it's literally, it's so brilliant as an idea. Like, when I saw that in the cinema, I was just like, that looks fucking gorgeous. Yeah. I think most of the audience are probably laughing, but I thought it looked fucking gorgeous. <laughs> the idea of them basically as comic panels projected against the clouds yes. in the form of flashes of lightning is such an inspired choice. Uh, they crash into this, like these rocks, and then he start, uh, David Banner takes on the form of the rocks, and they're kind of pounding against one another. That sounds wrong, but like <laughs> kind of fighting one another. Yes. And it all reaches this catharsis where. Take it all! David Banner wants all of the Hulk's powers. He wants to absorb all of the Hulk's not only radiation, but of course the the built-up angst that comes with this radiation. Yeah, yeah. And what Banner pumps him full of as he's pounding against him <laughs> is <laughs> Ooh, yeah. is this is getting surprisingly Oedipal as it goes on. What's the male <laughs> version of Oedipal? There's not really a male version of Oedipal in the sense that uh, you've got it the is Angley's Hulk, two thousand and three. <laughs> So he's he, instead of pumping him full of just his his, his green power, jelly, his radiation, yeah. mm-hmm. he's sort of pumping that green jelly into his father. <laughs> he's also pumping all his built-up angst and anxiety, which manifests as a giant fucking jellyfish. Yeah, that's a weird bit for some it, reason. It's just a weird bit, and that was one of the most. Weird and that's the climax. Things. That's the climax of the film. Is this colossal, formless jellyfish with memories in it? Which then gets hit with a gamma missile, yeah. and that's that's the end of the film. So no, yeah. like Dick Glider, or Dick Glider is such a good form. Dick Glider. <laughs> Dick Glider. If you need me, this is my card. Dick Glider, attorney at law. So yeah, no Dick Glider, and no. How did um, Fox's X Men end? Uh, Magneto inside the Statue of Liberty, like big face off with the heroes. Yeah, it kind of. Like that. That's right. It's and it's very short, really, as a sequence. It's only about fifteen minutes or less. About five minutes, their final fight. If you can even really call it a fight, exactly, because basically, in the end, it's the Hulk is too much. It's just what, well, like one last bit of explosive catharsis. It's pure emotional catharsis. It's everything projected into this giant jellyfish, and then yeah. just ended with a missile. And that's it's not actually the end of the film. There's a little sort of post. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What? What? Yeah. What would? for now be a post-credits sort of scene where turns out Bruce is actually in a jungle yeah. somewhere. Um, he meets some, I think, some mercenaries or something and they're like... Hey. Yeah, and then he says, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry, but in Spanish. Don't make me angry, you wouldn't like yeah. me when I'm angry. And that feels like kind of a, an, an insert demanded by the studio for a potential sequel and also to put something in there for those poor fans <laughs> that were expecting an actual Hulk movie. Yeah, and yeah. Not, not what they got. Which is very true to okay. the text in that it's true to the, the essence of the text, but not true to the text. Thematically, it's yeah. true. Textually, it's not. As in, it's not very much like how a Hulk mm. comic really often yeah. plays out. 
but it's very true to the themes that underpin the whole yeah, and, comic. And can I can I say as well before we move on to talking about kind of the aftermath of it? I just want to I just still want to make this point about the the thing in that film that I still really love is like the centerpiece, which in many ways is the kind of climax because you don't get one, and <laughs> like really, it's like yeah, is this amazing? Good. He's in the tank. And I think at the same time, David is explaining to maybe Jennifer Connolly about what had happened with his mother dying. And this flashback, right, which is so powerfully kind of put together and so emotional and so overwrought. And in the tank, they're like electrocuting him and he's remembering it and David's explaining it. And it, and it ends in this horrible, sad, beautiful moment. And then his eye opens and he becomes the Hulk and for like the next 20 minutes to half an hour or however much of the film is just this one sequence yeah of, of just the Hulk just finally just, just letting it letting rip and it is messing up and everything. for me I don't know whether it's the weight of if it's the kind of not tedium I would never say that but if it's that first 45 minutes of it being a bit grey and a bit flat and a bit nothing's happening so it just and the kind of little you're right the kind of monster movie dark bit where they're fighting and there's dogs and that's weird right but it's the, it's just this huge catharsis of that moment and then that chasing the jets and blowing up planes and chucking tanks and you know all that sequence and then it ends with that amazing it still looks amazing bit where he's walking out of the and I remember this clearly was the image in the Empire Review at the time was him walking out of the San Francisco waters and nothing can stop him. And he's just like, and they're just like, we've thrown everything we can at this creature and nothing will stop him. And he stands in front of uh, Jennifer Connelly and gradually shrinks. 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 Like and, I, and, it, and his trousers slide down yeah. to his ankles and his weight yeah. flops out forever. And everyone's like, see. it's Eric Benner's penis. Isn't it a chopper? That's yeah, a funny here. reference. Not many people are going to get that. That is funny. Actually. But yeah, yeah, I like that. But yeah, yeah, so I feel like, I feel like that centerpiece. I I still have yet seen, and I will say, I feel like, even though the animation is shit, the new Invincible series has those bits for me where you just don't know where it's going to go, and you feel like nothing can stop this thing. Do you know what I mean? And, and I feel like that kind of that, that is so little. Uh, explored in the kind of post MCU Disney Marvel thing. One thing they really nail about him is that you can't really have a comic book movie, and this is why they've done the whole dirty mm. a bit. You can in the MCU. You shouldn't really have a comic book movie where somebody can actually beat yeah. the Hulk, because the idea is is that he is unstoppably powerful. That's the whole concept of the Hulk. The angrier the Hulk gets, the stronger he gets. And one thing that I really like stylistically. Mm. That the movie does is that when he gets angry he actually gets more swole he actually gets bigger <laughs> like his muscles grow bigger and his height grows bigger and he gets absolutely insanely massive so when he's like 10 feet yeah, tall yeah. like he just keeps growing great he even defeats one of the yes. dogs because it's biting his bicep and he gets yes. angrier and his muscle grows larger and kills the dog while it's biting it because he just keeps yes. getting more and yeah, more yeah, yeah. powerful and the marvel comic movies don't mm. do that the Hulk plateaus, he reaches a certain power level and he doesn't keep getting angrier mm. and stronger. Like, it, there will be no stakes. Yeah. 
because when the Hulk joins the super team, there are no stakes because he'll just keep getting angrier and angrier and more powerful. But, but that's what powerful. I'm saying. I feel, I feel like, like and, and Invincible is exploring a very similar thing. It's the legacy of Superman, really. You're going like, there is this, it, and it's a masculine thing of just going, what can stop it? Nothing can stop it. And it just becomes this like, yeah. kind of alarming, kind of dizzying force. That's why it's a monster movie. Because that's the yeah, whole yeah. central conceit of every monster movie. If this can't stop it, what can? That's why, in the end, it wasn't the airplanes. It was beautiful that killed the beast. Or, yes. look, Godzilla's rampaging through that city. We'll have to use the final thing, which is the oxygen destroyer, which is so powerful, eliminates oxygen entirely. Like, there's nothing can stop the beast, which is what the Hulk is, which the film yeah. understands. Yeah, yeah. Maybe isn't what audiences wanted, no. but it, although it's not true to their expectations and although it's not true word for word to the comics it is true to what the central conceit of developing the hulk was which is cold war atomic mm. anxiety around nuclear weapons mm. and the ensuing media that that developed from giant ants through to shrinking men mm. through to like this jekyll and hyde transformation mm. that's what the hulk was born out of it was a horror comic i i think that's a good what i'm saying is without getting unnecessarily wanky about kind of contemporary militarization and the iraq war and, yeah, and shit like that, that because it's not you're right it's not worth going into that because ultimately that's horseshit i feel like we've captured why that film gave to us as young superhero fans and cinema goers you know this kind of unparalleled up, up till then kind of expression of we hadn't seen many films like it and, and well there are no films like it apart from like monster films or psychodramas or whatever it isn't it, you know it, it's that thing where you're going i think it just literally is so different and mm. and it is one of the benefits i would argue of the inconsistency of pre-marvel cinema you know the complaints of Marvel now are, are that it that it is too consistent in some ways. Formulaic. It's, That's the problem. As in, much like the scores themselves, which always go, you know, they're always doing that fucking thing. But there's no Superman movie score. There's no like these like amazing weird films existed in I a think, time where uh, there is no template for it. Community does it quite interestingly. I think it's the second to last series where they're talking to that uh, security guard on campus. Yeah. He's like, you're going to go see the new Avengers movie? I hear they penned in Joss Whedon creatively this time, really. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> that should end well. The idea that they, Marvel movies, and they are allowing more creativity in a sense yeah. that they're allowing greater diversity. They're allowing directors mm. to come in from very different fields altogether, but they will still be made to a particular formula, probably. Yes. Uh, can I say as well, I, I, I feel like the greatest superhero movie of the last 10 years isn't part of that it's bloody spider-verse which is stunning mm. that may have a, a claim for greater superhero movie though to be honest that's definitely exactly and it's you know it's one of those things where you're going you get the big studios who are just chucking money at shit in the in the grand tradition of where most of the great art of the 20th century comes from is like an indifferent a millionaire <laughs> flinging money at artists yeah. and going, I don't care what you do with it. And you come out with Spider-Verse, which felt like it came from nowhere, is like a genuine piece of like cinematic art. It's just art. And, yeah. it's, and combining that with superheroes and doing a great job of the voice cast and the story and the character and the structure. And you're just like, 
that kind of shit comes from this fertile ground of of no consistency. <laughs> it's definitely true to say that um, Angley's Hulk, as well, may have had quite a significant influence on something like Spider Verse purely because of the way it's shot, mm. as well. Those comic panels within a film panel. These, yes. These attempts to go for fidelity when it comes to looking like the comic book aesthetic and visual probably had quite a large influence, ultimately, even if just through osmosis, on yeah. the way that Spider-Verse eventually looked. So, mm. I mean, it, it was doing a lot of different things for the time, and I think its influence can be felt on a lot of, on a lot of superhero movies now. Mm. Um, even if not a direct inspiration, I doubt many directors would claim inspiration from Ang Lee's Hulk because of how... Yeah. And it's strange that you have, these, you have these three, like Eric Banner, Edward Norton, Mark Ruffalo, are all like great actors. Do you know what I mean? And then they're all just like, they're all in the shadow of this, of this property. Do you know what I mean? And it just, it's <laughs> weird because I, I like Ed Norton as an actor. I mean, apparently he's a bell end in real life. But anyway, I like him as an actor generally. But his, mm. what should have been on the money, Bruce Banner just does not work for me in The Incredible mm. Hulk at all. Like, yeah. he just he just doesn't work as Bruce Banner. I don't know why. It's probably because Edward Norton, I don't know if he just seems too assertive. <laughs> but anyway, like, Eric Banner as Bruce Banner, mm. kind of perfect casting because of the name, but also, like, he just, <laughs> like, just name he just alone. works, really, as Bruce Banner. Mark yeah. Ruffalo nails it, too, I should say. I do think he's a yeah. brilliant Bruce Banner. He's, um, he did a series um, last year called I Know This Much Is True, where he... He does that classical actor thing of playing two characters at the same time mm. on screen. He's he's both playing him and his schizophrenic brother. In that, you're just like fucking hell. He's a really he is so good at that, and he really mm. cares. And you're just a bit like, I I just have such a deep desire to kind of have him have his own thing. Do you know what I mean? And be his own. You may yet. I do think as well. Like I don't think that the Marvel comics, Marvel um the MCU. I don't think they've done a bad job with the mm. whole per se like they've, and I think that they've managed him reasonably well in the films that he's been in and also The Incredible Hulk as well not a bad movie just a very very mediocre movie yeah it and it's a, it's a weird the same time as Iron Man 2 which is a bad movie it's not a sequel and it's not a reboot but it is yeah I don't yeah I kind of want to do, I don't want to go too much into the, the, the dubious canon that yes. is those Hulk movies but I think technically speaking it's never actually been made official that it's not canon because <laughs> the incredible hulk at the time when it came out and it was directed by louis leterrier i think mm. um I, I think it was known for the trend wasn't the i'm sure he did the transporter you know the um jason statham movies i'm sure he did those anyway he's best known as an action director because basically marvel wanted a total departure mm. the, from what hulk was and they decided they were going to listen to fan criticism and going completely the opposite direction they were going to hire an action director the Hulk was going to be in a shitload it was going to have loads of action sequences it was going to have a quotation marks proper villain for the Hulk to punch yeah. um, but they were also sort of hedging their bets as to whether or not their cinematic universe was going to pay off Iron mm. Man had come out Hulk, uh, uh, Thor was around the corner and mm. this was kind of the cheapy one that wasn't directed by a prestige director like Kenneth Branagh it didn't have the budget of Iron Man, and uh, it didn't have ILM behind it either. ILM mm. do the Incredible Hulk. Was it was it one of those cases of trying to stake the claim for a uh, for the license? Then it was just that kind of 
we they have the kind of needed back. to do that in that they had they've still got a complicated licensing issue where they're not allowed to make standalone Hulk movies, which is why the Hulk popped up in Thor Ragnarok. And mm. they basically did Planet Hulk. Because they wanted to do Planet Hulk. They had lots of demand for Planet Hulk. So they basically merged it with Thor Ragnarok so they could do the story and so they could mm. keep using Hulk. But he's not allowed to have standalone ventures, no more Hulk movies. Mm. Um, also, Marvel are understandably cagey about doing Hulk movies because neither of those movies did particularly well at the box office either. So they've got no particular desire to change those rights. Mm. I feel like, much like the end of the film itself, the, the legacy of, of the 2004 film is kind of murky. It's that kind yeah, of... Yeah, particularly because it wasn't made in 2004. Fucking hell, man. <laughs> Fucking hell. I hope you enjoyed our uh, long rant about a great film. We'll do it again with Judge Dredd at some point. The And uh, <laughs> play us out. Here's a Hulk theme tune from the animated series. Hulk, 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 Hulk. <laughs> On and out to Space Adventure. <laughs> he got hit by gamma rays. And his, and his life was changed forever. forever in the greenest of ways. <laughs> Thunderbolt Ross is the general. <laughs> Be concerned about your property because he's really irate. <laughs> and he's not great, he's incredible. He's whole. <laughs> okay, and uh, today, today's episode was brought to you by. Chaz. Chaz. No, Chaz! Chaz! Chaz. <laughs> do, do you mean Chaz? No, Chaz. It's been brought to you by Chaz. Chaz. I sponsored this one. <laughs>